This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. So I've wanted to interview today's guest, Doug Lyle, for a long time, but I was also hesitant because he's so out there in the plant-based world. His book, The Pleasure Trap, is so well-known. His work at True North, his talks are, are so well-known that I didn't want to just have him regurgitate. I wanted to have a reason for our conversation beyond my desire to talk to him and get him on the show. And so I waited for a long time to, to reach out. And when I did figure out what I wanted to talk to him about, it was about part two of The Pleasure Trap, which is pain. And those of you who have been listening to the podcast recently or reading my blog posts know that I've become very interested in a phenomenon that Dan Ariely calls benign masochism, the active seeking out of certain levels of pain as a, a strategy for happiness, actually. Um, which sounds very counterintuitive and would have been crazy talk to me even six months ago. But that's where I am. So I wanted to talk about the second part of the three parts of human motivation that Doug and Alan Goldhammer lay out in The Pleasure Trap, which is part two, avoiding pain. There's a lot I could say by way of introduction to this episode, but I'm not going to say it for a bunch of reasons. One is Today's been a really hard day. I did two interviews, interviews, and views in the views in the morning. You know, lis listening to people is not easy. Um, so energetically, I'm a little bit wiped. We had a power outage uh, in the middle of the day. And frankly, even though this is Tuesday, I'm still kind of smarting from Saturday's long run, long for me, 15 miles, longest run I've done in, in maybe a decade. So I'll be back on the other side of the interview to talk about the garden, do the usual wrap-up stuff. But for now... Without further ado, Doug Lyle, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. Well, great to be here, Howard. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. I've been I've been looking forward to this for a long time, and and especially after um, interviewing your your longtime colleague and friend Alan Goldhammer, who who told me a story about how he became plant based, and it had something to do with you and basketball. So I'm wondering if you could kind of give us your your journey to to where you are now. Well, I'm not sure what story he told, uh, but uh, the this, the story for for me and actually uh, to a large extent for Alan is that uh, we were you know a couple of sort of reclusive high school students, uh, not very well integrated with our peers, <laughs> and um, we uh, my uh, we were very interested in, in basketball and trying to be uh, you know really good athletes. And so we'd come over to, uh, he'd come over to my house and we'd lift weights and eat peanuts and drink orange juice to try to get stronger, <laughs> uh, which my dad thought it was a good, that would be a good thing. And, uh, then we'd go over to his house and we'd play in his driveway. And so this went on for years. And, uh, but in high school, my dad, who's, uh, was pretty open-minded character, uh, and would read a lot of things. I uh, read a book called Psychodietetics by a pair of uh, Alabama uh, academics, medical people, uh, Sharaskin and Ringsdorf, who were among the first to make a big deal about uh, sugar and hypoglycemia. So in, in that book, the, the concept of refined, refined sugar was the big evil. And so uh, Alan and I 
uh, we, we sort of read the book, but basically we just took my dad's word for it. And we decided that, that this was a, this was a, 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 would be evidence of our superiority if we were to, <laughs> would be, we eat this way. So we did. And, uh, and so we cut out all refined uh, sugar. We were in like in juniors in high school and, uh, and other people found out about it. They either thought we were weird or they, they couldn't do it. And I think that really fueled Alan seeing that other people couldn't do this. <laughs> so, uh, so we, we, we went about our business and actually lived this way and, um, and it became second nature. And then we went on a backpacking trip I think between our senior, our junior and senior years, uh, to, to, uh, Yosemite and Alan had planned the whole thing. And the, uh, when we got out there, uh, he had miscalibrated how much food we should have. Uh, he had not like taken into account the altitude and how many calories we would burn, et cetera. And so we're, we're a little short of food and I was really irritated. <laughs> I was, you know, I, I was like, Hey, you know, the one time in my life I don't take charge of, of the, the planning of something, you know, he messes it up. So I was pretty bent. And I remember to this day uh, being in our tent thinking, boy, and saying, you know, when I get back, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to eat a pizza. And, um, and he was, had a different reaction. And, and in that conversation, in that, in that time, the seeds of something remarkable were being born. And uh, he said, you know what, I'm, this food thing is really interesting. Um, he, he had, he had uh, it had marked for him the profound dependency that we have on food. Hmm. And most people, I may never actually experience that. And Alan, a red flag went up in that head. And he said, I'm going to really look into this food thing when we get back. And I actually didn't know what he meant. Um, I was just focused on the pizza. So, so was, was, he back, was he reacting to that, the, to the lack of the food or to, to his like yeah. interest in your reaction? Like he was like, he found your being bent out of shape kind of curious too. And, uh, you know, I don't know. That's a great question, Howard. Uh, I, I have a feeling that I probably my urgency was, was marking for him how important this was. And, uh, and, and undoubtedly his own, but he, he's more naturally emotionally stable than I am. So, uh, he, he would have been, it wouldn't have been as disturbing for him, but somewhat disturbing, but he also knew that I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a wimp. And so it's not like I cry at the drop of a hat, but I, I was pretty bent. And so I think you're right. I, I never, it never occurred to me that my, my emotionality about it, it's not like I was yelling or screaming, but you know, I, I was irritated and and frustrated and worried and um we still had days to go you know on our big loop in yosemite and so the um anyway yeah when he got back he did he he became extremely interested in food and he became uh, he worked for a natural food store uh immediately when he got back he pushed his way into a job the guy didn't want to hire him and uh alan actually literally started to go into the guy's back uh uh to the back storage area and started working <laughs> it was an amazing thing like he just started working yeah the, the guy said i don't have a job for you now just started working anyway. <laughs> anyway within about three months he was managing the place of course at, at 
uh, 17 years old. And, uh, and, and the, the rest is history. Uh, on the bookshelves there were all these books uh, about health, and Alan uh, went through them one by one and uh, you know, had, took a few wrong turns for a while. He had read Pablo Arola on Are You Confused and was, was uh, you know, moved by that and then tried to sell me on those ideas. But uh, Arola was a lacto-avo uh, vegetarian. And so we did that for a little while. And then he ran into, believe it or not, uh, a guy that uh, worked there was a, had, a, uh, I think, a master's degree in botany from, um, there's, a, there's a real hippie-oriented uh, Cal State uh, up in uh, Eureka. I can't remember the name of it. The, uh, but anyway, this kid had a, and his name, of all things, was Steve Plant, <laughs> if you can believe that. So Steve Plant had discovered natural hygiene and the works of Herbert Shelton. And so he told Alan, uh, this is the real deal. And so, uh, and Plant was a, was a fastidious natural hygienist. And so Alan read Shelton and Shelton made a lot of sense. And for, for the, your listeners uh, who are unacquainted with Shelton, if you were to read Herbert Shelton and you were to read Whole uh, by a couple fine thinkers that I know, the, uh, you would find extraordinary parallels between uh, Shelton's thinking and the work that you will see in Whole. And so this was uh, this very much uh, impacted Alan, and then Alan sold me, and that's, that's how this went down. So in Alan's head, it may have started to he, – he may have been trying to get a starting job ahead of me on the basketball court, which never was going to happen, by the way. <laughs> he, he said that too. You guys are you guys are in agreement there. Yeah, yeah, he's bigger and stronger, but he's a little bit clunky, and so uh, that, that I, I had a natural advantage uh, uh, on that in that one particular sport. <laughs> but uh, that that is our story, and from Herbert Shelton, uh, Alan then learned about fasting. And uh, then he became hooked up with the natural hygiene people, and he met some extraordinary people there. Now the late Dr. Alex Burton and uh, uh, David Scott in Ohio, and um, and now uh, Frank Sabatino, who's of course still uh, alive and well and very busy uh, in Florida. And so he he met some fantastic uh, uh, you know alternative physicians and learned a great deal, and then went on to uh, found Tree North Health Center. Gotcha. And so, so I understand, you know, he talked to me about like why he became a chiropractor because he wanted to study with these people and, and master these subjects. What about you? How did, did you know at that point you know, when he went off on his um, healthcare journey that you were going to be taking a parallel track somewhere else? Like yeah. what, what did you do next? No clue. You know, I, I, I was, um, I was actually what happened to me was interesting. I used to, when I used to play uh, basketball, we played very hard. You know, we were on the uh, wound up on the varsity team in high school, and um, we uh, w- the practices after the practices, I-, I would come home and I would be um, uh, I would be in agony. My stomach uh, would I would have enormous pain, and eventually I would you know have gas, and then then the pain would reduce. And this was uh, essentially a daily event. And uh, then when Alan, uh, in, in my senior year, when Alan was learning about more about food and pushing me to eat differently, um, and I, I remember 
you know, I don't remember what day it was, but I can remember that Alan said, look, just don't eat anything with animal food in it for a day. Let's see what happens. And I did. And then suddenly I, you know, suddenly I was uh, not constipated because I was going to be constipated because I was uh, uh, working so hard and sweating so much and becoming dehydrated uh, in practices that, you know, being constipated was almost a sure thing. And so uh, literally one day into eating healthy diet, it was gone. And I was astounded. Okay. And uh, so then I couldn't quite believe that it was such a perfect uh, correlation. So then I, uh, the next day and the next day, and suddenly all of that agony was gone. And then when I went back and ate uh, the way I'd been eating before, it instantly came back. And so that, that to me, um, I might not have ever figured that out had I not been a high school athlete who was uh, pushing very hard and getting really dehydrated and winding up with these incredible cramps. So um, that, that's what turned me around. Uh, but I had no, would have no idea that my, my interest, that was about the, the extent of my interest, Howard. <laughs> like, uh-huh. You get me out of pain. You tell me what to do. I mean, it was like magic. And uh, my friend Alan had, you know, at 17, had identified this and fixed it. And uh, my parents didn't ha- have any fix for it. They knew I was in, in pain every day and didn't, it was like, well, Doug's just got to go suffer for an hour and a half. And um, they, they had no idea. And they're feeding me ham, you know, ham and eggs in the morning or whatever it was just to try to make me strong. And uh, so they were just regular old people. And so to have this kid, you know, prescribe something that nobody else would and then have it fixed was, believe me, I, I never forgot that to this day. And that was a, that was a defining moment in, in what my health behavior would be for the rest of my life. And so, uh, anyway, but when I went off to school, I, this was not an interest of mine. Uh, I was very interested in self-esteem, uh, which now, you know, 40 years later, we're returning full circle. My, my website is called esteemdynamics.org. And what I'm very interested in is esteem processes. I'm interested in how people feel about themselves. And of course, uh, ironically, uh, probably the number one thing that causes people to feel bad about themselves is being out of shape and overweight. Mm. And uh, it's the number one personal goal in the United States. And so it, it's uh, ironic that, that my personal interest in psychology uh, winds up being curiously wedded to uh, what, what Alan has done in his career and the knowledge that he's been able to give me. And now we, we wind up at a place where I actually have the solutions uh, for people that struggle with these problems, but also with an insight into the, the psychological processes that are, that are so troubling. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I put a pin in, in the word esteem in my notes, because I definitely want to come back to that. Um, yes. But I want to, you know, what I wanted to talk to you about uh, up till a month ago was like, you mm-hmm. know, I, I read The Pleasure Trap, as I said, which, which you and Alan wrote what, around like 12 years ago or so? Yes, uh, we published in 03, but we were writing it around 2000. Okay, so it's over a decade and a half in in the making. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I've listened to your talks live and and your YouTube stuff, and there's a lot in there that I've wanted to argue with, (laughs) you Uh know? Okay, Um, good. And and I think, you know, I think some, some of that may come up, 
Um, yeah. But what I re- what I said, what I really want to talk to you about is so when I, like the the message that I heard loud and clear was human beings are pleasure seeking machines, right? That was in the title yeah. of the book. That's related to these hyper palatable foods that we're eating. And by the way, I should, I should just say for people who don't know your work, like you're right. all you're all over the place. Like I, I don't want I didn't yeah. want to just make this another, you know, intro to Doug Lyle because there's there's many of them. And so if if people yeah. you know people should just you know put pause and and go find you and and read the pleasure trap and and they'll they'll understand a lot um, about your your philosophy and the and the basis for for your work, but. Right. But, you know, one of the things you say is that, you know, human beings, we're, we're in this pleasure trap because we're surrounded by foods that we don't get in nature and we respond like any animal would to hyper palatable foods is we take advantage of them. And, yeah. and the thing that I missed and I'm only starting to come to is the second one, which is human beings are, are programmed to avoid pain. Yeah. And... What's happened to me is, you know, I've been helping people in this field, you know, eat better, feel better, lose weight, get healthier for for a while. And I never at all focused on the pain. And so here's my here's my question that I I kind of I really want to explore. We're in an environment where there's all this hyper palatable pleasure all the time. We're also in an environment where we we don't have to deal with pain and discomfort on any sort of daily basis for most of us, unless something goes wrong, is do you right. think that's a problem too? Like we have we have too much pleasure and not enough pain, or like what's what's your view on pain? Well, um, I actually think that, that that pain in general is a is a very immediate short term motivator, uh, to, obviously to get you to change behavior. The uh, so uh, you don't touch the hot stove and and don't don't walk on a wiggly rock that's going to sprain your ankle. The um, pain avoidance is a is a more broad uh, broad concept where people go to work and try to make sure that they're going to have a roof over their head so that they don't have the pain of being stuck out in the cold at night. So they're sort of vaguely they they don't really quite put that all together, but they're a lot of what it is that they're doing. Is uh, is pain avoidant behavior as much as it is. now your concept that we we live in a in a world where we experience very little pain uh, and the consequences of that um, the, the truth is is that I think there are a few consequences of that in the sense that that people um, people rarely face some fairly rough worst case scenarios. And so they wind up being pretty sensitive to uh, to for pretty small potatoes issues. <laughs> so uh, so people uh, and th- this is a it's a useful thing for me and has been for a long time to kind of uh, because as a psychologist I'm, I'm thinking like an evolutionary biologist. And so for for 25 years my thinking is wrapped around ancient man and the the challenges and and difficulties that such people faced. And as a result of that, uh, I recognized that the threats that they faced were starvation and death by predators. They're they're, uh, and, you know, freezing cold. In other words, they had very, very rough um, um, threats. And the worst case scenario was often not that far away from a behavioral mistake. And so as a result, 
um, they would consider the the issues of of uh, my child not doing quite as well in school as I expected as a total joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and so the problems that often people come to me with are, as a young psychologist, they were a little overwhelming. Like, oh my gosh, my boyfriend and. He's upset with me, and then he's he's not gonna marry me, and I really want you know like this was like a big deal. Or we we've arranged the wedding, but now we're not getting along. It's like oh my god, what are we gonna do about this situation? This this is terrible. Like you know, as a young psychologist, you can feel overwhelmed. But as as life went on, and I started to incorporate the concepts that you see in understanding that that human beings. Uh, are a Stone Age entity that has been fast-forwarded in your own lifetime into the 21st century, into bizarre, uh, and in many ways, many ways, wonderful, but in some ways, very bizarre and distorted uh, environment. At that point, you are correct, Howard, are remarkably soft and touchy about things that are a little bit uncomfortable. So the idea of having to uh, I actually am aware, literally this week, I'm aware of a situation. 40 is getting married, even though they know that they are, the woman for sure knows that she does not want to be married to this guy. And the uh, she's going to do it because she's been previously engaged and had the, the situation break up on her. So she doesn't want to be embarrassed again. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. The, uh, and so th- this is the, the sort of touchiness about uh, uh, and, and unwillingness to face some sometimes embarrassing and sometimes uh, difficult or inconvenient situations that, that people are remarkably um, uh, – they've been remarkably well insulated from what I call real problems. So uh, I will – I'll clamp my language just a hair – uh, to to let people know how it is that I divide the world into problems. There's what I call real problems. That is, you've got cancer. You know, your mom had a stroke. Uh, you, you've got you know, you, you've got real wide uh, problems here. You 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 can't seem to get a job, and you're a single person with three kids, and it's uh, you're you're up against it. And one of them needs a dentist badly, and you can't get one. Uh, there are real problems, and then there are going to be what I call BS problems. And BS problems are problems that ultimately when we look at what the fundamental problem is, the real problem is, is that you're going to be inconvenienced. And that's all. It's just a, some amount of energy that you need to go through in order to resolve the problem. And all you have to do is hustle a little bit and, and feel cheated because someone has uh, made life a little bit difficult for you, but then it's done. And we're going to find that the great majority of problems that people face are actually BS problems. They're not what I call real problems. Mm-hmm. And um, now BS problems doesn't mean that I'm not compassionate about these problems and that there aren't, there aren't tricky, trickiness to solving them as well as we can. But in, in the final analysis, most of the problems that people see today are not grave. They are not predators. They are not starvation. They are not the people across the river that want to murder you or rape your wife. They are not the the magnitude of the problems that our ancestors faced in the Stone Age, not by a a thousand percent. And so I would agree that I think people do a remarkable amount of psychic suffering 
around problems that are very, very mild. And I think that is a derivative of a world where we don't have a lot of pain. So for for those people, for those of us who who suffer yeah. from lots of bullshit problems, uh, or you said BS, <laughs> BS problems, for, for yes. a second, I couldn't remember if I was on your podcast or you were on mine, but I, I get to say bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is, you know, is there something in our, in our makeup, in our, you know, for you as an evolutionary, um, psychologist, is there something that makes us look at these little itty bitty problems or these non-life threatening problems and misinterpret them? Like, do we, do we think that they're real? Yeah, these are, this is uh, an issue of what we're going to call calibration. So your, your nervous system is designed to sort of organize and calibrate problems as uh, per their magnitude. And so people have had this situation many times, and it can be amazingly freeing. So you can have someone who is, you know, worried about her daughter's, you know, relationship with her new husband and w- worried about whether or not uh, her, other, her other son's job is going well and really, really worried about all kinds of things. And then suddenly either herself and has all been out of shape about her, her, her sister, you know, didn't send her a nice Christmas gift. Like all of this can be going on. And then somebody gets cancer and maybe it's her. And so now suddenly all of those other things become like really unimportant. And so people, the, the, the issue is, is that the, the, uh, the system is designed by nature to turn its attention to and have emotions about whatever seems to be the most important thing. But in the modern environment, being so extraordinarily benign, they can be having pretty big emotions about pretty small things. And it's only when one of these real big things, a real big, big, bad Stone Age problem comes along, like, like potential death, um, when something like that happens suddenly the system can recalibrate immediately. And mm. so the, the, the trick to me in the modern environment is to actually consciously recalibrate your brain by, uh, by having uh, reminders that whatever this big thing is, you know, the clerk of the store isn't giving you your money back on such and such, like realize what, what an amazing world you live in that there is even a store. <laughs> and, and uh, and that they even make products that you couldn't make you couldn't make in a thousand years yourself, and they hand it to you for fourteen dollars. And so th- this is a you know, essentially understanding the blessing that you live in, and uh, sort of having that attitude uh, can help bu- buffer you against the natural calibration processes that would make you very touchy about some pretty small losses. Uh, have you seen the, the Louis C.K. bit called Everything's Amazing and Nobody's Happy? No. <laughs> I think you'd like that it. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> no, that sounds like exactly what I'm talking about. He, he, starts gonna... talk, he starts talking about, like, you know, airplanes. And so every, I think everybody assumes, yeah. you know, he's going to talk about all the problems. He's like, you're flying through the air in a metal tube like a god? And and you're upset that you had to spend 40 minutes on the runway? Yeah, that is fantastic. I, I never heard of this, and I just wrote it down. And I'm definitely going to watch it because this is this is uh, way better said than the way I'm saying it. But it's exactly the same message. So so here's yeah. how here's how I got into this um, this 
inquiry about pain um, yeah. pre pretty yeah. pretty recently. You know, I, I, I give people advice about what to eat and when to eat and how to eat and how much to eat and all that stuff. And right. then... And, um, and by the way, you, you'd be pleased to know that the advice on how much to eat is as much as you want, as long as you're eating the right things. Um, <laughs> Great. But, but then I hear, I hear from people, my coaching clients, consulting clients, I couldn't do it. You know, I felt sad. Mm -hmm. I, and so, you know, I know you talked about, you know, binging as a result of deprivation, but there's, there's also something going on where, where people, um, are, are, you know, are self medic self-medicating emotionally with food and it's almost like you know this this little pain like you in the in the in the tent at Yosemite yes. are bent right. at, are bent and you know you've got a real emergency possibly you know who, who knows yeah. but like right. i'm sitting here and there's donuts in the next room and i can't even bear the pain of not eating those donuts once i know they're there <laughs> yeah this is uh, this is how I look at it, and and um, the the you, people will find me occasionally rail against uh, other interpretations because I'm frustrated with uh, the fact that the world the world sort of sees these problems uh, from an entirely different perspective than the one that I see them from. So let me let me share with your your listeners my perspective. The um, well, first of all, the, the conventional perspective. The conventional perspective is, okay, once you know what to do and let's suppose you're overweight, you know what you should be eating, then you should do this. And then you do it for like three hours and then you sort of fall off. And now, now we're going to have this psychodynamic excavation as to why. So I was really stressed or, you know, I'm just going through a hard time right now, or I just uh, feel deprived and, you know, I was deprived as a kid and, you know, oh, I, et cetera. So what we start doing is we start talking about the weaknesses of the person's psychology. Now, this, this is, uh, from my perspective, the entirely wrong direction from, be, from analyzing this problem. The, the truth is, is that the entire motivational machinery of the organism is designed to eat the highest calorie, least problematic food that it can get its hands on, which would be a chocolate shake pretty much. And so the, the organization of the whole motivational system is designed by nature to eat crap. The, uh, in order to not eat the crap, you have to override the instincts. So these instincts were not designed for the modern environment. They were designed for an environment of scarcity where you had to find out and remember where the concentrated food was and fight to get it. And so if, if they're going to hand it to you in a drive through at McDonald's, for goodness sakes, you're not going to forget where that is, and you're not going to forget what it tastes like. And so as a result, you are absolutely going to vote over and over and over again for those choices over and above the choices that you've now learned, which are better, like you should chew up that apple, okay? Well, you don't, your brain doesn't want to go to the trouble of chewing that apple when it can suck down a chocolate shake that's 10 times the calorie density. So as a result, the way I look at this problem is very different. I look at healthy living very similar to being in a submarine two miles under the surface of the ocean. So in a submarine, you, you are aware that there is tremendous pressure outside of you. 
that the water is trying to get into your submarine by the laws of physics. And God forbid, forbid there's a little crack in one of those rivets in your submarine because the water is going to push in there and it's going to widen the crack and it's going to try to tear your submarine apart. That's how it works. Healthy living is very much the same way. Healthy living is you are in a submarine in a, an environment where the pressure is extraordinary around you trying to get the crap into your body. It's trying to get in. Everything about your motivational system is trying to get that in. You've got a little bit of a forebrain bundle of your modern human intelligence that can actually see around this because you've learned that your instincts are wrong. And so you can say, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be out of this thing called a pleasure trap. I'm supposed to eat this food that, that Howard and Colin call whole, okay? All evidence to the contrary in your nervous system because your nervous system says, why would I want to eat the whole food when I can eat a fractionated processed food that I don't have to do any work to chew it and I get all the concentrated calories and I don't have any of that pesky, worthless fiber, water, vitamins, and minerals, for goodness sakes. <laughs> so you're fighting this nervous system all the way. Now, this is why healthy living and healthy living regimes tend to be fragile. They're, that, they're a submarine in hostile water. And so as a result, you're, you're going through this hostile water and you're doing a pretty good job. Maybe you do a good job for three days. Maybe you do a good job for three weeks or three months. But all that it's going to take is some turbulence in that water. All it's going to take is a little chink in your armor and the crap is coming in. And when it comes in, then it starts to widen its own crack. Okay. And, uh, and this is, this is actually how I see it. So, uh, by explaining to people that actually it, this is, so what I'm trying to say is this is way harder than people think people's people are actually misunderstanding by an order of magnitude, the difficulty of adopting a healthy, intelligent lifestyle. So as a result of that, when they struggle, they blame the wrong things. Okay. They blame themselves. They blame their stress. They blame their mother. They blame all kinds of things because they're actually frantic trying to understand why they weren't able to execute a very reasonable plan. And the answer is you weren't designed to execute this plan. This executing this plan is a hundred percent counter to your biology. So in fact, it's going to take extraordinary commitment and determination and understanding to continue to go at this plan and to continue and to continue. This is like a lock that you need to pick in order to get an enormously important treasure of your freedom. And you're going to have to keep working the lock and keep working the lock and keep working the lock until you figure out how to get that thing open. Okay. And so that's, that's how I look at it. And that's why I get upset uh, when people ask me, well, I, but I eat for emotional reasons. It's like, no, you don't eat for emotional reasons. Not really. You are, you, if we looked and see when people actually eat crap, power, we would find that, of course, it's when they're upset. It's also when they're happy. It's also when they're bored. It's like anything, okay? It's when they're hanging out with their friends, when they got nothing else to do, and they feel like, gee, it might, might be a good idea to go have a chocolate popsicle. It's like, it's any time. It's it's the ocean, and it's trying to get in. Uh, it's trying to get into their psychology and into their body. And uh, so this is the reason. And it takes an enormous bunch of scaffolding and learning and uh, and relearning and mistake 
and, uh, and determination to actually carve out what I call a groove. And the groove is when you get enough habits together and enough knowledge together uh, and enough good circumstances together and enough smart ass things to tell people to leave you alone together that you can actually get in a groove and stay there for a good long while. That's what we try to do. So I guess what, you know, one of, one of the challenges I've had with the, the motivational triad is, yeah. you know, which is, you know, people, you know, organisms seek pleasure, yeah. seek to avoid pain and try to do both using as little energy as possible is right. that that's not my experience of, okay. of human motivation. Right. Yeah. Cause you know, I see people you know, trying to accomplish great things, right? Like I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't see you, I don't see your life or Alan's life as exemplars of that. So are, are, are you saying that, you know, that, that some people will make a conscious effort to override that. And it's this tremendous lifelong effort. Like what about like ultra marathoners or, or, you know, people who become uh, CEOs? Oh, I see. I, I see where your misunderstanding is. Okay. The, um, that the, uh, what's going on is no, no the motivational triad is correct. <laughs> so let me, let me explain what's happening. The, uh, human beings, uh, will, they they are competing for mates, and so it, it's going to turn out that uh, uh, probably the most exquisite pleasure in people's lives is uh, uh, sexual, and it's the most it's fundamentally the most important because it's actually where your DNA is being reproduced. So it's going to turn out that people are people seek uh, the most exquisite sexual pleasure that they can get. And the most exquisite sexual pleasure that they can get is to win in mating competition, the most outstanding mate that they could possibly win. So this is, this is a, a primary motivating force of organisms around the world. This is why whales will sing the songs that they sing. This is why uh, gray strikes will kill as many bugs as they can and put them on thorns. This is why peacocks will um, uh, groom their tremendous plumage and display it. In other words, you're going to see a tremendous amount of life's energy is going to be directed into mating displays. And so, uh, in, in fact, nature essentially has two very, uh, very different looking programs and they sit in an interesting divide. One of them is going to be what we're going to call a, a, a very ascetic very machine ethic, in other words, to try to be as efficient as possible. The, the pleasure trap and the way I've written it with respect to food is very much about this. In other words, it's about the absolute efficiency of behavior. In other words, trying to uh, get the best parking lot is the closest that we can so that we don't have to walk very far. Uh, it means there's all the things that we do, including eating the most concentrated food uh, and the softest food so that we don't have to chew. The, these, are, these are a component of survival programs. Now, reproduction programs also located in the mind, the same mind and the same DNA, but in different locations, are actually causing very, very different behavior. So you, you will see that throughout the animal kingdom, animals actually not only will expend tremendous energy uh, to compete for mates, but one of the most important things that they do is to display their ability to waste energy because it's in the extraordinary waste of energy 
that they actually display how good their gene quality is. Okay. So this is why, uh, uh, so people are going to the gym uh, in order and they are going to expend tremendous energy at the gym. They are not doing this to increase their survival odds. They're doing this to increase their competitiveness with respect to uh, more attractive mates. This is why they're doing this. And they will, they may expend tremendous energy in the gym or they may expend tremendous energy in athletics or in their learning their ability to sing songs and play the guitar so or to, to build a multinational corporation. What they are trying to do is they are trying to do competitively difficult things in order to display genetic superiority over those individuals who cannot do it as well, okay? So the, the organisms are designed to be very conservative uh, with their energies that they expend in order for survival problems. And they are designed to be uh, not wasteful with respect to mating display energy, but in fact, uh, be willing to expend tremendous energy as intelligently as possible to come up with the most magnificent mating displays that they can come up with. Okay, so inside the the achievement motivation of myself or Alan Goldham or anybody else that you've ever seen that is working to try to achieve things. What they are trying to do, including myself, is we are trying to do things that are sexually attractive. Now, you might say, well, that's, you, that seems a little weird, Doug. Uh, I, I thought you were here to help people. Yeah, well, that's sexually attractive. So when you, when, you, uh, when you are actually doing things for the village, you're designed as a village-based animal, and the males, for example, the most sexually attractive things that they would do, would they would hunt and they would protect the pack. Those are dangerous, biologically expensive behaviors to do. The, um, and so when we start to understand that achievement motivation is wrapped around these things, including uh, hustling and working extra hours at the law firm so that you can be a partner, so that you can have a fancy house and a really expensive car, okay? The truth is, is that that $80,000 BMW doesn't get you from point A to point B any better than a Honda. But what it does is it shows your ability to waste $60,000, that you could have got a car just as good for 20, but we demonstrate our ability to waste the energy that is required here. So now, hopefully, from this perspective, you start to see that there, there really isn't a contradiction, that the motivational triad is still sitting underneath this behavior, uh, but it means that, that it's, it's running calculations that until you understand that half of life has to do not with survival, but with reproduction, and that, that energy is going to be directed at reproduction, and it can be uh, directed in, you know, in humans in very convoluted, uh, extraordinary ways, then you'll understand that the motivational triad is still operative. It's just looking different from that perspective. Okay, so something in me wants to throw a little uh, political correctness at you. <laughs> And, sure, go ahead. And you know, it's, sure. so that that all sounds very you know heteronormative in that yeah you know so you know I think about my you know gay lesbian transgendered friends and acquaintances who would hear that and right. say well you know so then somehow I'm deviating from like life's plan and it doesn't it doesn't sound good it doesn't feel good. Okay, you're deviating. Well, well, like, right, because like, the, you're, you like Doug, Doug Lyle is telling me that my goal should be to find a hot 
the hottest person I can from the opposite sex and mate with them. And that's not who I yeah. am. And that's not, and that's not my life. Yeah. But that's, that's simply because they've got an altered mating search image. They're, they're doing the same thing. They just happen to have an altered mating search image. So it, it, in the gay community, for example, looks are unbelievably important and males strive to achieve in order to get resources in order to get the most attractive mates. It's the same game. It's just a, the, the cards are a little bit different. I see. Okay. Yeah. So I want to, I want to come back to yes. pain then. Sure. Um, so, you know, you, you mentioned things like the, the, the two most resource intensive things that our, our stone age ancestors, male ancestors would do are, you know, hunting yeah. and, and war essentially. Yes. Um, right. both of those, uh, you know, come, can come with a tremendous amount of pain. So is there some evolutionary benefit or, you know, to seek pain, to, to endure it, to show, like, is there a way, you know, that just like I would spend 800 calories at the gym, is there a way to mm -hmm. show that I'm like tough and that I can endure pain? Does that have an evolutionary advantage for me as well? Uh, yeah, undoubtedly. So this is, um, because the, the, the women are designed by nature to understand that there are these conflicts out there uh, that exist um, the, but between males and between us and other species. And so they're designed by nature to look for toughness in males. And so uh, one of the things that males do, you'll find worldwide, is they'll go through various and sundry rites of passage uh, where it is that they demonstrate their ability to withstand pain. So these wind up being sexual advertisements to the females that they've actually gone through this. Okay. So yeah, and that that's probably, uh, part, part of the reason for, for the popularity of tattoos in some subcultures, uh, that you're willing to go, go through the pain of having this thing happen. Uh, but certainly, uh, men, men, are are designed to uh, actually not mind some of the rough and tumble and some of the pain that goes on in some uh, competitive processes uh, physically uh, because they are uh, this, this part and parcel of, of a derivative of having testosterone. And uh, it, it's part of the whole mating dynamic in, in males and females. Mm. And you'll see that throughout the animal kingdom. So for example, if you take a couple of rats, uh, an extraordinary experiment done a few decades ago that if you do uh, maze learning in rats where, where the, what they get at the end of learning the maze is cheese, an average rat will learn that maze pretty well. In other words, they'll, they'll figure out that they turn left, turn right, turn left, turn right, three rights and a left. Eventually, they'll get to the cheese, and you put them back at the maze at the beginning, they'll get there quicker the second time, and they'll get there even quicker the third time, and they'll get there even quicker the fourth time. In other words, the, the cheese as a reinforcer is a very, very good reinforcer for hel helping the hippocampus, uh, the memory systems inside the rat, remember which turns to make in order to get to the cheese. Now, it turns out that uh, the, the, the event that precedes successful mating for a rat will be fighting with another male rat. So... <clears throat> You uh, therefore some uh, evolutionary oriented uh, rat psychologist decided he was going to put instead of cheese in the middle of the maze, he was going to put another male rat in the middle of the maze and find out what that did to the, the learning process. And it turns out that 
a male rat will maze learn better if what's at the end of it is a fight with another male rat than cheese. <laughs> so that uh, that tells you something about why these young men want to be on the high school football team. That's exactly what's going on. <clears throat> right. And, you know, as I think about our culture, we really don't have rites of passage that are sort of socially sanctioned that are useful. So we do, you know, we have self scarification as you know, around tattoos, you know, there, there are gangs, there's risk taking, there's all sorts of, you know, crazy adolescent behavior. And, and, you right. know, again, it's coming back to this thing where I keep focusing on like, we're pain deficient. We're, we're consciously intentionally pain deficient in our culture. Cause it's, you know, it's, again, coming back to the, to the, the three parts of the motivational triad, avoiding pain, right. it's more nuanced than just like, I've got to avoid pain at all costs, isn't it? Right. It's more nuanced than that. You know, you, you bring up something that I have never, I, I've really never thought of this before. This completely novel thinking uh, for me to go down this line. And it, it actually speaks of, um, it speaks of, of a potential useful learning experience. Uh, I remember reading, I didn't read it very well, but years ago, your Dalai Lama had written a book uh, about the art of happiness. Uh-huh. And one of the things that he talked about in there was uh, having a, uh, an annual time where you go under deprivation, where the, you, you go camping or whatever it was, you get out into nature and uh, essentially live close to nature. And, um, and the, when I think about this, I think about the, uh, your, your notion of how pain avoidant people are and how it might be useful for people to, to uh, uh, I actually, I used to belong to Rotary. And one of the things uh, the guys would do and guys and gals would do is, you know, once a year, they'd go down to Nicaragua and help people build houses for a week. And you know what? They, they would come back exhilarated uh, from this. And it was hard. And there's mosquitoes. and <laughs> there's, there's no cool power tools. And it was, it was a rough, hard day's labor. Uh, but they were doing something for the village to the best of their ability. It was also difficult and had bumps and bruises and unpleasantness to it. And, uh, and I think what it, what it did was for a period of time, uh, they came back essentially as you, would, as you would be speaking, recalibrated as to just how good this is and, um, and, and that they had survived things way tougher than the mild bumps and bruises that they get shopping at Macy's. <laughs> and I think it's a good thing. I think it's a very, you know, this is a, you've sort of changed my, you, you've opened up a new little window in a, in a, uh, in a latent concept that, that has been sitting around my mind for a long time, which is my concept of BS problems versus real problems. Oh. And I think it might be a very good idea to give people periodically a taste of real problems <laughs> so they can keep that perspective. I think this is really good, Howard. This was a great conversation on this. Well, I, you know, I got this concept from people like Rich Roll, um, mm-hmm. you know, fo- folks who like very, very few people lose a lot of weight and keep it off or truly transform their lives. Like I find you yeah. know, a lot of people like, oh, they start getting better. And then the closer they get mm-hmm. to the ideal they thought they wanted, like I'm healthy, I'm off my meds, I'm at my ideal weight, then the, the attraction is lessened because they're closer to it. And the people who who like truly are able to say, you know, no, I'm not going to have that stuff ever again. 
They, 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 something about them becomes warriors, and they look forward mm. to their their fifty k runs and and their you know really intense wor- workouts and spin classes and and they yeah. get and they get pleasure from the pain, and like that's that's yeah where, I think that's where I'm yeah. I'm coming from now. Like I, I want to be more like that, like because I feel myself right. like I'm I'm a little. You know, when no one's looking, <laughs> I can slip up in my habits. A little soft. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. This is. Uh, let me let me explain something that you're that you're getting on on top of here, and Good. it's a slightly different angle. Okay. Uh, than than I was just discussing. And by the way, I only have um, another another little while. We got about a few minutes left. Okay. The um, the concept here is the issue of self esteem, and the. Um, and the maybe we could talk about this another time, but the self-esteem it comes from a you've essentially got two two different audiences that you're designed by nature to impress. One of them is real people on the outside. So this is going to be potential mates, potential friends, and potential people that you would meet in the business world for trade. These are the three big markets that people compete in in life. And so they, they have a device in their head, a meter for actually tracking what those other people seem to think. And so when, let's suppose that uh, uh, some attractive member of the opposite sex or the same sex, if that's your proclivity, the um, uh, gives you good feedback. Well, then your esteem meter goes off and it, it creates a mood of happiness. If you apply for some job that you think that you should get and you don't get it, your esteem meter goes off in the other way and it's depressing. Mm-hmm. So your, your esteem mechanism is tracking your, how much esteem you have in that little part of the village. And you're designed by nature to feel good when it is good feedback and not good when it's not good feedback and really neither here nor there when the feedback's about as expected and it's simply so-so. Now, the, uh, that's because if it's good feedback, you're designed by nature just like the rat and the, and the cheese, you're designed to say, well, what did I do? You know, what shirt was I wearing? Why, how was my hair? It was, in other words, you're, trying, you're supposed to be paying attention to things that seem to be associated with your success. Now, it's going to turn out that, that you, you as a human have a remarkable psychic device. Uh, and that psychic device is you actually have not only sensitivity to other people's uh, behavior towards you, but you also have a mythical audience that lives inside your own head. And this is what I'm going to call the internal audience. And in the history of philosophy, they'll call it self-consciousness. In cognitive therapy, they call it the internal critic. Okay. But the truth is it's just an audience and it's a, it's, it's an amalgam of your, of your guess as to what those real people would think if they saw you, uh, Uh, is they saw you working at your craft. So it's going to turn out that it's there so that you, that you will watch yourself as you rehearse for the real displays in front of real people. So if you think about, for example, uh, some gal shopping for a blouse for a date in Macy's, she puts the thing on, she looks in the mirror and she looks at herself as if the guy is looking at her. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so this is the internal audience actually help engage her behavior. And you can think about a young man in the Stone Age, you know, 200,000 years ago, uh, thinking about there's some attractive girl on the other side of the little get-together. And he could just walk up and talk to her. 
that his internal audience says, no, what I'm going to do is let me see if I would say this. And he will give an opening line inside of his own head, and he will imagine what her response would be. Okay, And so this, through, through the use of the internal audience, we rehearse our lives before we actually interact with the real people. Okay. Okay. Now, this is you know, when you do a good job at rehearsal, your internal audience gives you esteem cues, just like real people would. This is what I call self esteem. So, self esteem, we, we confuse these terms that when somebody gives us good feedback, we say, well, that was good for my self esteem. No, that actually wasn't your self esteem, that was your esteem. Okay. So a more, that's more object, comes, objective based on that, the, the audience that, that it's, that's, it's evolutionarily incumbent upon you to please. That's right. Whereas your self internal mechanism is you watching yourself. And so when you, uh, when you do things that are difficult and hard when nobody is looking and you grind and you grit, your internal mechanism will give you pride. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, is that the energy conservation mechanism is also working against you, working that hard, same side. So you, you've got, you, you don't want to waste energy, but at the same time, that self-esteem mechanism can get, uh, can be, can essentially give you currents of pride that go through the system when you do a very good job when nobody's looking. Now, the important part about this is that this is the closest track to happiness that there is. The, uh, we, we are addicted to the idea that, oh, just show up in a fancy BMW and we're going to get a bunch of esteem cues from other people. That's lazy and easy, but it's actually not. Uh, it's not actually, it seems cheaper and easier. But the truth is, is that self-esteem is the process by which we have the most control. We can't control how other people are going to react to us, but we can control what the internal audience is going to think. And if we dig and we do the hard work and we, we put out some grit you know, in our daily life, your self-esteem mechanism will, in fact, uh, pay you in the currency of pride. Mm. And, uh, the, the, but it's very tempting not to do that work, and there's going to be uh, reasons for that. But that, that's what you're referring to when you're referring to these warriors essentially get addicted to the self-esteem process. And that's a, that's a very healthy uh, place for people to be. Mm. So is that a, the missing link for people in, in what we talked about earlier around that behavior change around diet is like, is, is self-esteem a key piece in getting people to say, okay, I'm going to say no to the shake and yes to the apple. Yes. It's absolutely the key piece. The key piece is that we have to get people addicted to the self-esteem process, and they need to understand it and learn it. They need to know that, in fact, they can feel much better about themselves in three or four days, that it won't take them losing 40 pounds Hmm. and getting esteem cues from other people, that, in fact, the self-esteem mechanism is sitting right there, ready to give them good feedback if they will go through the grit, okay? Uh Uh, Now, there's a reason I could talk about another time about why we will avoid that grit. Uh, there's a there's a countervailing evolutionarily designed mechanism to stop you from making those efforts, which is incredible. But I'll tell you about that another day, Howard. Okay. But uh, but absolutely, what we want to do is get people focused on the little micro goals that go on during their day that are not the great victory 
you know, dance that takes place on the beach next summer. But in fact, you know, beach bodies are built in the winter Mm -hmm. and, and your self-esteem is the thing that can turn around your life uh, very, very quickly as if you pay attention hard work and how it feels for you to have done that work that very day. Fabulous. Well, I feel like this is another puzzle piece that's helping me on my journey. And uh, I know you got to go. Fabulous. So thank you so much. This is, uh, this is a lot of, of grist and grit for, for my mill. And, um, and for just one more time for folks who want to know where they can find you, um, on the internet, give, give us your, your locations. Esteemdynamics.org. Okay. Sort of all one word. And and that's a clinical psychology practice. That, and we have stuff about health and esteem and all kinds of stuff on that website. Cool. Well, Doug Lyle, thank you so much for, for all your work, for all the ways you've influenced me and, and so many other people that, that I know. And thank you for taking the time today. Howard, a pleasure to be with you. You're a phenomenal writer. And if people, if your folks have not read Hole, they got to rush out and get it. Oh. Incredible, incredible work. Oh, that, my esteem just went up. Thanks, man. <laughs> there you go. All, all right. right. Thanks for having me, Howard. All right. Take care, Doug. You bet. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes with links to all the books and studies we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 160. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 159 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. If you get the podcast but not the weekly email newsletter, get over there. Sign up. What you waiting for? I have links to original articles I write. I share recent episodes in case you uh, don't subscribe. And I share links to my uh, Tribe Well TV show, and I try to use proper grammar, avoid typos, that sort of thing. If you're in the Detroit area, check me out on June 28th. I'll be speaking at the pbnsg.org, Plant-Based Nutrition Support Group, the largest such group in the country. They must be doing something right, and I'm going there to check it out and find out what it is. And if you go to pbnsg.org, you can find out more and buy tickets. Thank you to Plant Yourself Podcast patrons Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, John Vilkanovsky, Dave Bizek, and the mysterious Michelle X for your generous support of the podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can, of course, share this and other episodes on social media via email, word of mouth. You can write a review on iTunes and listen to this wonderful review that I just got by iTunes user Mom Athlete. Mom Athlete writes, one of the best podcasts for plant-based information that I have found. Howard is smart, funny, humble, and intelligent. Yeah, he used to be humble after until he read this. I love listening to him and his guests. He gets experts in the plant-powered field more than any other podcast. Love, love, love. Five stars, and if there were ten, I'd give him those. Oh, my goodness. Gosh, that warms my heart. And you know it really helps other people find the podcast and, and jump on board. So thank you so much, Mom Athlete. And you can become a patron by pledging a one-time amount or an ongoing gift to the podcast. You can do that over at plantyourself.com. Next week, I talk with Eric O'Gray, an amazing story. He transformed himself, I won't say from what, 
uh, you have to listen to the podcast to hear the whole story, but into a plant-based athlete through his relationship with a rescue dog. And I predict that next week there won't be a dry eye on iTunes. In garden news, our beautiful two-wheel tractor Francesca got her first flat tire. So I, uh, I went over and begged my neighbor Jim to show me how to pry off the tire, examine the inner tube, blow it up, see what the problem is, find the leak. After about an hour, I really began to appreciate the value of outsourcing tasks like this to a professional tire shop, which I did yesterday morning. And $20 later, Francesca's back in business, and I never want to change a tractor tire again for as long as I live. We've also got about 200 garlic bulbs drying on the porch, and our standalone freezer is half full of oil-free, dairy-free pesto, so our house is starting to feel like the kitchen of a really big Italian restaurant. It's pretty amazing. No lessons from the garden today, just appreciation for when things work out the way you want them to. Rather than taking that situation for granted and getting bent when it doesn't happen. That's it for this week. So, as always, be well, my friends. <laughs>